0: Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Job chapter 34. This is the third chapter in Elihu's speech, though some commentators treat it as a separate speech because of the way it is introduced. Regardless of how you wish to characterize it, here, Elihu begins to talk less obviously to Job and more directly to the gathered crowd. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Then Elihu answered and said, Hear my words, you wise men, and give ear to me, you who know. For the ear tests words as the palate tastes food. Let us choose what is right. Let us know among ourselves what is good. For Job has said, I am in the right, and God has taken away my right. In spite of my right, I am counted a liar. My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. Now, you can hear the shift there in the focus of Elihu's dialogue. He was talking to Job. Now he's talking about Job, and he is clearly attempting to engage the crowd of people listening on. In a time before movies and television and the internet, people did enjoy a good speech. We forget that in ancient Greece, people used to line up for jury duty. Nowadays, we try to do everything we can to get out of jury duty. But in those days, that was high entertainment. And Elihu knows it. He says that the ear tests words as the palate tastes food. And he invites the crowd to listen to what he has to say about Job. Francis Anderson is right on the mark here. He says, he is no longer reasoning with Job, with a view to helping him. He is attacking Job in order to score a point. For all their lucidity, his words are devoid of pastoral concern. They have become an exercise in rhetoric, Closed quote. So it seems. Listen to what he says in verse 7. What man is like Job? Who drinks up scoffing like water, who travels in company with evildoers and walks with wicked men. For he has said, It profits a man nothing that he should take delight in God. Well, to be clear, Job never said anything like that. He said that he has lived blameless, not sinless, but blameless, righteous, and that it hasn't protected him from terrible suffering. But he never said that there was no prophet in worshiping God. That is an unkind and unhelpful distortion. And on top of that, Elihu throws in a completely groundless accusation. Where in this story is there any indication that Job is a companion of evildoers and wicked men? That's just an insult, plain and simple. Verse 10. Therefore, hear me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. For according to the work of a man, he will repay him. And according to his ways, he will make it befall him. Of a truth, God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Who gave him charge over the earth, and who laid on him the whole world? If he should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together, and man would return to dust. Here, Elihu's wisdom begins to run perfectly parallel to that of the three older friends, whom he was so angry with just a few chapters back. But like them, he asserts that God is perfectly just and entirely powerful. Therefore, he's behind everything that happens on the earth, and everything that happens on the earth is perfectly just and appropriate. Again, none of that is untrue per se. It just isn't true enough to be useful. That only covers a few of the necessary basis. What about evil? What about the fall? What about redemption? Elihu doesn't seem to have an awareness of those categories. He just says that God does everything, and all that he does is just. Therefore, if it happened, it should have happened, and the fault must lie with you. Well, how is that different, and how is that helpful? It turns out that the charismatic approach isn't any more far-seeing or useful than the proverbial approach. They travel on different paths, but they end up at exactly the same place. Tremper Longman III says here, While Elihu began his monologue by insisting that he was different from the friends, he is not advancing a substantially different argument. He too baldly states that God repays people according to their actions— God does not twist justice by rewarding the wicked and punishing the righteous. If he did, then God himself would be associated with wickedness and guilt, closed quote. So there is absolutely nothing new here and nothing useful or comforting to brother Job. And Elihu isn't done. Not by a long shot. Verse 16. If you have understanding, hear this. Listen to what I say. By the way, it it really helps to engage your imagination when reading through Job. You have to imagine the scene. Job is sitting down dejectedly. He looks like an old man, a sick man, and a defeated man. Across from him sit three very wealthy middle-aged men in the prime of their intellectual and social powers. Around them stands a respectful crowd of onlookers, And prancing about in the midst of them is a young, energetic, and self-impressed man trying desperately to gain and hold their attention. The crowd, however, seems to feel like they've already heard the best of the argument. They came to hear Job. They came to hear the other wise men. Who is this young peacock? Why is he still talking? And so perhaps the crowd is dispersing. They're packing their donkeys and preparing to leave. And Elihu is desperately trying to get them to stay and to listen to him. That's why he keeps saying, listen to what I have to say. If you have understanding, hear me, listen to me. It's all a little bit pathetic. And remember, by the time he's done, no one even bothers to reply to him. No one. Not Job, not the friends, not God. It's like his speech never happened. You have to imagine all of that. You have to visualize that in order to get the full effect. Verse 17, shall one who hates justice govern? Will you condemn him who is righteous and mighty, who says to a king, worthless one and to nobles, wicked man, who shows no partiality to princes, nor regards the rich more than the poor, for they are all the work of his hands? In a moment, they die. At midnight, the people are shaken and pass away, and the mighty are taken away by no human hand. Here, Elihu asks a series of rhetorical questions. He asks, first of all, whether one who hates justice would be given rule over the entire universe. He obviously anticipates a negative answer, but it is hard to see why this should be so. Why would we assume that if the universe is governed, that it must be governed by an entity that loves justice? Why couldn't it be governed by a wicked entity or an entity beyond our sense of good and evil? Then he asks whether it is wise to accuse a powerful ruler with injustice. Again, he obviously anticipates a negative answer. But again, why would it be wrong to accuse a powerful ruler with injustice if indeed he has acted unjustly. History is littered with powerful rulers who did act unjustly and who were wisely deposed by their subjects or neighbors. Elihu seems to think that might makes right, that the mere act of being God makes everything God does beyond the level of human scrutiny or inquest. What an absolutely terrifying thought! And how different, thankfully from the viewpoint expressed by the psalmist, who says in Psalm 34, 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. The Bible does not present God as a cosmic despot who will not tolerate scrutiny or inquest. The Bible presents God as knowable, approachable, and delightful. He wants to be known. He lays out his ways. He invites us to experience him and to delight In his benevolent oversight, he is, as we will eventually discover through the person and work of Christ, the good shepherd who knows his sheep and whose sheep know him. Thanks be to God. Elihu is way off track here in terms of what he says about the Lord. Verse 21, for his eyes are on the ways of a man and he sees all his steps There is no gloom or deep darkness where evildoers may hide themselves. For God has no need to consider a man further that he should go before God in judgment. He shatters the mighty without investigation and sets others in their place. Here again, Elihu is speaking about God as if he were some kind of cosmic tyrant. He says that he knows men perfectly. He can see into the human soul, and therefore, he is not required to hold an inquest. He doesn't need to consider evidence. He simply shatters whom he will, and he does not need to explain his decisions to people like you and me. Well, again, thanks be to God, Elihu is absolutely wrong here. And If he is indeed a distant relation of Abraham, then he ought to have known better. Because in Genesis 22, verse 1, we read, After these things God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And God said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Contrary to what Elihu says here, God apparently does have a desire to consider a man further. He contrives a test and he watches how the man performs with interest and keen attention. In the Abrahamic narrative, he wants to see whether Abraham loves God or merely the gifts that God gives, meaning, this is the same test that Abraham once endured but he has no intention of actually allowing Abraham to kill his son, Isaac. So at the critical moment, God calls a halt and he does explain himself to Abraham. He says, Genesis twenty-two twelve, 12, Abraham, stop. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son. Son, from me. You see, this is something that Elihu ought to have known. God is personal, He is just, He does communicate, and He is good. Thanks be to God. Elihu, however, is not finished with his speech. He goes on to describe how he thinks God oversees the universe. Verse 25 Thus, knowing their works, He overturns them in the night. And they're crushed. He strikes them for their wickedness in a place for all to see, because they turned aside from following him and had no regard for any of his ways, so that they caused the cry of the poor to come to him. And he heard the cry of the afflicted. When he is quiet, who can condemn? When he hides his face, who can behold him, whether it be a nation or a man, that a godless man should not reign, that he should not ensnare the people? Elihu says here that God is particularly vigilant to watch over the rich and the powerful so as to protect the weak and the vulnerable. If he sees someone acting inappropriately, he immediately moves to strike him down. The implication, obviously, is that this is precisely what has happened to Brother Job. His sudden collapse is nothing more than the swift and judicial action of Of the Lord. God did this, Elihu concludes, and you have no right to expect an explanation. The fact that He did it is all the explanation you should need. Verse 31 For has anyone said to God, I have borne punishment, I will not offend any more. Teach me what I do not see, if I have done iniquity, I will do it no more. Will he then make repayment to suit you because you reject it? For you must choose and not I. Therefore, declare what you know. Men of understanding will say to me, and the wise man who hears me will say, Job speaks without knowledge. His words are without insight. Would that Job were tried to the end because he answers like wicked men for he adds rebellion to his sin. He claps his hand among us and multiplies his words against God. The text is difficult here in this final section, but the gist of it seems straightforward enough. Elihu is saying that people generally don't respond well to educational suffering, and so God is forced to use a heavy hand. And again, the implication seems fairly obvious Job must have missed some sort of previous message from God calling on him to repent, and having pressed through that warning, Job has now received his just deserts. Francis Anderson's summary here is very useful. He says, like the others, Elihu is locked in to the inevitable conclusion. Job is to blame, and his guilt is to be measured by the scale of of his sufferings, quote. If Elihu had the last word, I think we would all despair, but a word from the Lord is coming. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to Into of the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those over the website at www.intotheword.ca. You can also check us out on Facebook, and I hope you do. We have a growing community of Bible readers over there, and we post daily encouragements and conversation starters. Hope to see you there. And hope to see you again tomorrow, right here for another episode of Into the Word.